Welcome to Lymphedema Podcast. I'm Betty Westbrook, Certified Lymphedema Therapist and the host of Lymphedema Podcast. The purpose of Lymphedema Podcast is to provide answers and explanations for people affected by the lymphatic disease lymphedema. This podcast is for patients, family members, medical professionals, and anyone interested in lymphedema. Each week, I discuss a new topic related to this disease to help you learn more and navigate better the journey ahead. Disclaimer, as a certified lymphedema therapist, all information provided is based on my professional experiences and education. I recommend that anyone who feels they have lymphedema or have been medically diagnosed with lymphedema seek in-person medical treatment from a certified lymphedema therapist. I'm so passionate about teaching others about lymphedema that I created this podcast. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're ready to learn something new today. Welcome back for episode 13 of Lymphedema Podcast. If you're familiar with the podcast, you know by now that I want this platform to be a resource for patients, family members, and medical professionals. Keeping true to that, I'm using today's special guest interview to speak directly to medical professionals. There are only so many tips, tricks, remedies, or special techniques we can keep up our sleeves before needing a bigger shirt. Mentors and experts are a great resource to grow our knowledge and to help make us better. Joining me today is Brad Smith. He is a speech-language pathologist with 30 years of experience specializing in head and neck cancer rehabilitation. In 2006, he became the fourth SLP in the country to become a certified lymphedema therapist. He served as the lead therapist in the head and neck lymphedema program at MD Anderson Cancer Center from 2006 until 2016, helping build the busiest head and neck lymphedema program in the country, evaluating more than 250 new cases of head and neck lymphedema each year. He has been teaching the evaluation and management of head and neck lymphedema course for the Norton School since 2009. He has co-authored two peer-reviewed articles and authored three textbook chapters regarding the management of head and neck lymphedema and as a frequent instructor at state, national, and international conferences. Now here, I'm really jealous. In 2015, he taught at the prestigious Foldy Clinic in Germany. Brad is a passionate and creative clinician and educator. He has been based at the Salmon's Cancer Center at Baylor Scott & White Medical Center in Dallas, where he hopes to continue clinical research in the fields of head and neck cancer rehabilitation and the head and neck lymphedema management. Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I am so excited to have you as my guest today. I went to the lymphedema seminar a few months after becoming a certified lymphedema therapist, and your presentation on head and neck lymphedema was the first of its kind I'd ever seen. I had heard of it in class, but I had never at that point seen a head and neck lymphedema patient. And I remember taking so many notes, and I promise you that within two weeks of me going back, one of our RN case managers was diagnosed with a cancer in her jaw. And within two months, I was treating her for lymphedema. And your course was perfectly timed, or I should say your presentation was perfectly timed, that it gave me just enough to get started. (laughs) So I felt like I kind of knew what I was doing. Um, So I really appreciate everything you're doing. 
Oh, sure. Nothing like getting dropped right in the middle of a boiling pot as soon as you get some training. <laughs> I know. I really was like, all right, well, you're kind of my guinea pig, but good thing we're friends and we've worked together for a while. We'll just, we'll just make it work. <laughs> Today's show is mostly focused toward educate, uh, clinicians. And so I would like to go ahead and just throw it out there. Um, what is your current role in your clinic? What does your day-to-day -day routine look like? Well, it uh, varies from day to day. I am a uh, practicing speech pathologist, so I do a lot of speech pathology-related work uh, with head and neck cancer patients for communication and swallowing rehabilitation. I see a lot of patients who have had total laryngectomy, total glossectomy, partial glossectomy, mandible reconstructions, and those types of things. And with those uh, patients, we also see folks who get radiation, um, combinations of radiation and surgery. So all of those things uh, will result in problems with communication swallowing as well as head and neck lymphedema. So um, on any given day, I may be working with people who have facial or neck swelling in combination with speech deficits, swallowing deficits, tracheostomies, uh, lots of different things. So um, today I had uh, about 50-50 lymphedema and other things. Tomorrow will be uh, a big lymphedema day. Other days I don't see any lymphedema patients at all. I use the phrase lymphedema day at work a lot. <laughs> I see orthos and lymphedema patients. So I'll come in and they'll be like, hey, are you, you going to be over here today? I'm like, no, nah, today's a lymphedema day. So I'm glad I'm not the only one who kind of uses that phrase. No, I know. It just varies from what walks in the door sometimes. So in my research to kind of prepare for today, I was reading in the textbook that I use, and it basically states that head and neck lymphedema is less common than lymphedema in the extremities. Can you speak to that? Are there reasons why head and neck sure. lymphedema isn't as common? Right. Well, if you think about the edema that you encounter in limbs and trunk, um, you're thinking, you know, the, the most common diagnosis is breast cancer. And then you've got people with lower extremity edema related to obesity and uh, lower extremity cancers and so forth. The numbers of patients who have those problems is just simply much, much higher. Uh, when you talk within a cancer population, and particularly in the U.S., um, in the cancer population, head and neck cancer only accounts for about 4% of all cancers. And so if you think about patients who undergo treatment with surgery or radiation or both, um, only uh, 50 to 75% of the patients who develop, who have those treatments will develop lymphedema if you look at the different literature. Um, some of the larger studies that are now a little bit older, quote 50%, um, when you look at the more recent studies by Vanderbilt, uh, where they looked at external edema as well as internal edema, uh, they estimated 75% of their study, which only had 81 people in it, but it's pretty representative, um, had edema internal, external, or both. So when you think about, you know, 50 to 75% of 4% of all cancers we're talking about maybe 2% of the cancer population that might develop head and neck lymphedema. So it's, it's fairly rare, um, and that's why I think there's so many therapists who don't encounter it on a regular basis. That's good information because I hadn't quite thought of the numbers like that. I've just, in a general sense, thought of 90% of lymphedema patients are secondary with the majority of that percentage being related to cancer. But I've never really thought about which cancer is more prominent and what are the side effects of those cancer treatments. So that makes a lot of sense 
when you break it down like that? Well, head and neck cancer is, uh, I think, listed as the sixth or seventh most common cancer among males. And it's not even in the top 10 for females. So um, if you work in a facility where you see head and neck cancer frequently, you think it's much more common than it actually is. Do you know maybe what some of the most common causes for those cancers are? Sure. Um, you know, historically, um, head and neck cancer has been strongly associated with heavy smoking, heavy alcohol use. And the thought is, is if you're a heavy smoker and a heavy drinker, then you're four times more likely to develop head and neck cancer than someone who does one or the other. But in more recent years, um, the shift has gone from older, heavy smoking, heavy drinking population to younger, healthier, non-smokers, maybe light social drinkers because of the onset of the human papillomavirus and associated um, oropharyngeal cancer that results from um, HPV positive diagnosis. So they estimate that by, I think, the year 2030, um, that 90% of the head and neck cancer that we're seeing are going to be related to HPV-positive oropharyngeal cancer, which is really um, a, a huge change because we're seeing patients now who are not 60, 70, 80 years old who smoked for 50 years. We're seeing 45 and 50-year-old people who are healthy and active and employed um, who are now developing cancer related to a sexually transmitted virus. And so now the demand for um, return to normalcy in some respects is, is greater because we have a younger person who wants to go back to work, who now has had to go through radiation treatment, let's say, for a base of tongue cancer. And that results in significant problems with swallowing, uh, lymphedema, and other things that have to be controlled well in order to return to their normal level of function. So uh, the shift in population has been uh, pretty striking over the past 10 years, and it's going to continue to do so because every other form of head and neck cancer is going down, and the HPV-positive oropharyngeal cancer is climbing. Wow. It's kind of scary because um, the method of transmission is uh, sexual behavior. And so with an increase in oral sex, for example, over the past 20, 30 years, uh, methods of transmission um, are more subtle, and it's not something that um, you've engaged in a, quote, risky behavior, and then a next day or two days later, you're sick. This is something where maybe you were exposed to a virus 20 years ago, and it's like dormant, or your body has managed that virus, and any um, HPV-related infection, say, uh, has been controlled, but then suddenly, 20, 30 years later, the cancer manifests itself. And the thought is that because the, the oropharynx, which is the area in the back of the throat, includes the base of tongue, the tonsils, and the soft palate, have a lot of uh, convoluted tissue with little deep pits and grooves that make it easier for uh, a virus to go in and our fluids, for example, uh, to go and, and become um, hosted in that environment, and it's not as easy to clean that area out. So um, that's one of the, the thoughts regarding uh, the change in the HPV-positive population. On the positive side of that, um, HPV-positive cancers tend to have a better um, cure rate than HPV-negative cancers, let's say a, a cancer of the oropharynx caused by smoking versus one that's HPV-positive. Uh, the outcome is better for survival, five-year survival, uh, for the HPV-positive cancers. 
Now, the complications that are associated with head and neck cancer, those are totally different than lymphedema in the limbs, right? Well, it could be. Um, you know, if you think about complications related to cancer treatment versus complications related to lymphedema, um, you have some similarities because you, in, in, in a case, let's say for breast cancer, um, a patient who undergoes chemotherapy radiation can develop fibrotic tissues and limitations of range of motion and scarring and various things like that. Same with surgery. Um, but the area of impact varies greatly. So, for example, um, let's say an upper extremity edema patient, uh, you have similar patterns of um, of impact where uh, swelling in the limb, you have reduced mobility. Swelling in the neck, you may have reduced range of motion and mobility. Uh, oral cavity swelling as well. The tongue may not move as well as it should. But when you start to have complications in the head and neck region, we have issues related to swallowing problems and airway problems and visual issues and things like that. So not to say that one is more important than the other. You know, if you have a, a disabled limb, uh, that certainly hinders your movement and your ability to do activities of daily living and such. But if you have um, your eyes swollen shut, that greatly hinders your ability to navigate and walk and drive and be independent in your mobility. Um, if you have a tongue that's swollen, stuck out of your mouth, and you might require a tracheotomy in order to breathe. So uh, there can be some differences in the impact of complications uh, both from the cancer treatment as well as the edema itself. And sometimes I think um, for head and neck patients, the appearance issue uh, may impact your socialization, particularly if you have significant facial swelling. Um, if it impacts your communication, it can also affect your socialization, your ability to communicate uh, emergent needs and, and so forth. So um, I think each site of diagnosis has its own problems, you know, if you have a grossly swollen leg or foot, certainly that creates uh, its own special set of problems. Um, and the risk for infection and cellulitis in the limbs, you know, can certainly be emergent uh, just as an airway uh, issue can be. But um, in some cases, I think the upper airway impairment may be the most urgent of all the issues that can come up. So you just mentioned cellulitis, and I wanted to ask a question just based off of that conversation piece. Um, have you noticed, or do you hear of your patients talking of cellulitis infections that come on after a trip to the dentist for a oral cleaning? I have not encountered anyone in that particular scenario that I know of. Um, I can see where someone might have a higher risk of infection uh, because of an invasive procedure at the dentist or any other invasive procedure up in the head and neck after it's been radiated, um, where you may not have as good a drainage uh, ability. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't have any personal experience with patients who have developed that. My um, experience with cellulitis in the head and neck population has been that it tends to be less frequent than in patients who have chronic swelling in a limb. Um, I don't know if that has to do with the gravitational benefit of the head being on the top of the body and we tend to have better drainage. I don't know if it has to do with the radiation effect and the tissue not um, perhaps circulating uh, blood and fluid as well. So the infection tends to stay more localized. I have had a couple of patients over the years who developed your typical cellulitis infection that spread like wildfire. 
And within a day, it went from the face and the neck down into the shoulders and the upper chest. But more often, I tend to see more localized infections that don't spread quite as quickly. I have a coworker that when she goes for her dental cleaning, since her lymphedema onset and radiation, she has developed a cellulitis infection in her cheek there. So I didn't know if that was, and maybe it'll help somebody out there, but. You know, that that makes sense because, um, you know, not to get too personal, but I have a, uh, an aortic valve issue. And so before I have any dental work done, I'm supposed to be on a round of prophylactic antibiotics because of things that could be released into the bloodstream during dental work. So it could be a similar uh, fashion for that. So with an aortic valve issue, uh, there's a potential for the bacteria to stay in the bloodstream and circulate within the heart and not be cleaned out as well. So it would make sense that if the bacteria released in a dental procedure were to get in the bloodstream, get into that cheek area and then not be drained effectively, perhaps that's maybe the trigger, but I've not personally had that experience. So switching gears a little bit and talking more about your evaluation method, are there any parts of your method or your routine that you would like to share with the clinicians? Um, being a speech pathologist, um, I might approach things a little differently than a physical therapy, occupational therapist, or a massage therapist, but, um, I am looking at communication. I'm looking at swallowing. I'm looking at voice. I'm looking at visual appearance. I'm also looking at cervical range of motion and those types of things. Um, I don't tend to be as detailed in terms of, um, upper extremity assessment because that's not what I'm trained in. Uh, but you know, I do a cursory exam of, you know, do you have any upper extremity weakness? Um, let's say you had a neck dissection. Do you have any cranial nerve 11 palsy? Um, other things like that. I'm doing a complete, uh, cranial nerve exam to make sure what's going on with the patient related to their surgery or radiation to see if, if we have any facial weakness, tongue weakness, those kinds of things that I would expect to see after a procedure. In my facility, um, like I said, I'm acting as a speech pathologist as well as a lymphedema therapist, so I always want to rule out uh, my speech pathology-related issues uh, at the same time that I'm looking at edema. I do have patients that come in strictly for head and neck lymphedema. Um, What I tend to involve then is uh, photographs, tape measurements, and I use a tape measurement protocol that we've published in two different um, articles in 2010 and 2015 that's based on some previous uh, published measurement protocols that we adapted a little bit. And I think you'll have those references on your website. Um, But I take a series of measurements um, around the neck. So I'll do three neck circumferential measurements. And then I combine those three measurements to uh, create what we call a neck composite score. I do that simply because I don't want to rely on one single measurement in one, one location around the neck because it may be the largest location the first time you measure the patient and it may not be later. But I take the three and combine them to kind of get an overall representation of the neck. And then on the face, we'll take a facial composite score. And what we do there is there are three anchor points that we'll measure from. One is right in front of the ear. From there, we'll obtain two measurements down to the corner of the mouth and uh, to the chin. And then we'll anchor at the angle of the mandible uh, down at the bottom of the jawbone on the back and then measure front towards the chin, towards the corner of the mouth, towards the edge of the nose, and then up into the inner eye corner and the outer eye corner. 
And then the seventh measurement is from the chin up to the inside eye corner. We'll do those measurements on one half of the face. We'll repeat those measurements on the other half of the face and combine those totals to get what's called the facial composite score. Those scores um, we'll use in subsequent follow-up evaluations in order to assess change. And based on our previous uh, published papers, we use a 2% criteria for change. We're not using um, right side versus left side to establish normalcy because there are no facial norms to tell you what's normal versus what's not. So we're basically looking at a, um, a linear assessment over time. So I'm measuring uh, day one, I assess they're at the end of their treatment, you know, 15 treatments later possibly, and then I'm going to reassess, and then they come back in six weeks, and then I reassess again, and I compare those follow-up measures. And so if the patient is greater than 2% different, then that's considered a change. If it's less than 2% difference, that's considered stable. And so we, we base that on uh, what we consider a clinically significant change. And oftentimes that translates into what you can see. So if I look at you and I say, oh, that looks better, then um, we can sometimes see that translate into a 2% or greater change. We also assess uh, edema stage. And back when we first published our first paper in 2010, we took the Foldy scale and added a separate level to it to capture some of the characteristics that we see in head and neck cancer patients that were not represented by the Foldy scale. So Foldy scale is stage zero is uh, patient reports edema, but you can't palpate or see it. And then it goes to a stage one, which is a pitting edema. Well, in head and neck cancer, we often see a non-pitting but visible edema. So in the MD Anderson staging scale, which is what we called it, was still stage zero. Then we have a stage 1A, which accounted for 28% of the people that we evaluated in our most recent study. Then we have stage 1B, which is the typical stage 1 Foldy where you have pitting edema. Then we have stage 2 and stage 3 like the Foldy scale does. So I'll assess with measurements. I'll assess staging. I'll assess photographs as well as the um, other speech pathology-related things that, that I would assess. And in addition to the measurements, what outcome measurement tools do you use uh, with your patients? Well, it's hard to find a good outcome measure that's specific to head and neck lymphedema. I believe Vanderbilt has been in the works to develop that. Um, I'm not certain. Uh, I know for a fact that the lymphedema fibrosis scale that was being developed by Xi Ding and uh, uh, Sheila Reidner hasn't been officially validated and published yet, but they're in process. Um, I believe that there is a Vanderbilt assessment scale, but I, I, I'd have to look that up for you. Uh, we tend to use uh, some quality of life scales uh, that are not lymphedema specific, but they are head and neck cancer specific. So some examples of those might be the MD Anderson dysphagia inventory called the MDADI, M-D-A-D-I. Uh, the MD Anderson symptom inventory, which is a general head and neck cancer symptom inventory, which is great for radiation patients. Um, maybe the University of Washington quality of life scale. Uh, there is something called the FACT-HN, uh, which is uh, a nice quality of life scale for head and neck cancer. There are a number of them out there, but uh, there's not a great tool that I'm aware of yet that's specifically for head and neck lymphedema. A little bit earlier, we mentioned a few um, characteristics of the gravitational pull that is beneficial 
to head and neck patients. Mm -hmm. And most certified lymphedema therapists are aware of gravity's effects on drainage. Um, But do you know much about the cabin pressure that affects head and neck lymphedema? The same way we warn our patients maybe that it would if they are a lymphedema patient of the leg? Sure. So there are definite effects of cabin pressure when you fly or even going up in the mountains, uh, change in altitude will have uh, impact when you go up. Uh, there is less pressure and you come back down and the pressure change will result in increased swelling. I, I'm a cancer survivor and lymphedema patient myself. So uh, when I fly, I have to wear extra compression and take precautions for the swelling of my leg. Um, when I have my head and neck cancer patients fly, uh, I will tell them on the plane, you know, you're not going to wear a compression mask on the plane that tends to alarm people. So, uh, they can do some manual lymph drainage. Um, if they wear a neck wrap or something, they could certainly wear that. But when they get to their destination, do their complete head and neck lymphedema, uh, manual lymphatic drainage and compression routine for the first couple of days when they get there. The effects tend to be within the first 24 to 48 hours, you're going to have increased swelling once you get off the plane. So we do see that uh, with, again, with altitude change, whether it's going up in the mountains for vacation or uh, with flight. It's funny you mentioned just a second ago about wearing the garment on the plane, because I just had a gentleman ask me in a consultation I didn't actually, he didn't have lymphedema, but he was at risk for head and neck lymphedema. And I showed him a picture of a full-faced garment. And I said, you could wear this, but I wouldn't recommend it on the plane. And he just looked at me. He was just totally terrified. And I was like, I'm not really sure they'll let you get on the plane if you're wearing this, but you could try. <laughs> oh, I have a funny story. I have a patient who um, needed a full facial compression garment. And he was extremely compliant in its use. And uh, he didn't, this is when I was in Houston, he didn't live in Houston, but he had gone to see his local lymphedema therapist and his routine was to place his mask as soon as he got done with treatment and then drive home while he's wearing it. Well, on the way home, he decided he needed to go to Walmart and he forgot that he had his mask on and he walked in and a security guard met him at the front and wanted to know why he was in this store wearing that mask. And he was highly offended because he had his mask on, completely forgot about having it on. But for some people, it's just a natural thing to wear and it, and it helps them. So, uh, but anyway, yeah, you wouldn't want to wear it in the bank or at the store or on a plane. So my other one is actually that a man went into the bank. He and he didn't enjoy or he didn't get, he didn't like his garment. And what he would do is he would wear his hunting mask that was a little bit tighter, but mm-hmm. he felt more comfortable in it. And I don't know how he forgot he was wearing his hunting mask, but he straight walked into the bank and was escorted out within two seconds. I imagine so, yeah. (laughs) Um, So speaking of compression, how do you advise compression in the clinic? Do you go straight garment? Do you guys do bandaging, a combination? What kind of compression do you talk to your patients about? Well, I'm I'm not a big fan of... um, using short stretch bandages for the head and neck patient if I can get away from it. Um, The guys that I tend to do that on uh, are going to be larger men who I may not be able to get a garment for, but these days you can find an off-the-shelf garment pretty well big enough for most people um, if you know where you're looking. But if I have to have something that I want to send them home in right away, and we in our current clinic don't stock those garments, so I have to ask the patient to, to purchase them. 
So um, if I've got a patient who can't purchase anything, if they're too big for what you might be able to find easily, or if I have to put them in something right away, then I may use a stretch bandage. But I don't like them um, as a primary if I can avoid it because it tends to move the fluid centrally into the face. And so when you do um, uh, sequential wrapping, uh, you can easily do two or three things that are not good. One, if you're using the entire bandage and you're wrapping and wrapping and wrapping and wrapping, you can certainly increase the pressure that's being applied to the point where it makes it hard for a patient to open their mouth. Um, makes it hard for the patient to swallow, those types of things. Two, it can create problems um, with uh, redirection of fluid where you don't want it. And uh, three, it's oftentimes hard to replicate that without uh, a, a helper. And so I do use them. Um, I modify the way that I apply them um, to allow it for an easy application. But I never use them without padding. And so I would always want to have a uh, compression pad, foam, gray, uh, half-inch gray foam pad or something like that to apply pressure and distribute the pressure more evenly. But again, I don't, I don't care for it. So what I like to do is use an off-the-shelf garment um, that is uh, affordable and easy to access. And so when I was at MD Anderson, uh, we stocked garments and we stocked the Epstein fascioplasty garment, which is not my favorite because the straps are a little bit skinny. But we had it, and it was easy to issue. And so I could grab it, we would bill it, and give it to the patient. Um, where I am now, we don't stock. So depending on the size of the patient, if they're an average size petite uh, person because the Epstein garments are one size fits all, then I may have them go on Amazon and find it. And they can sometimes find it for $35, sometimes $50. Uh, in our little store, they tend to charge $70. And so I tend not to refer my patients down because it costs them more money. I say find it online. So we find a chin strap that's going to apply pressure to the neck and to the lower face, provided that's where the edema is. If the edema is in the submental area under the chin, lower jaws, anterior neck, I want to get something that will apply pressure to those regions. Um, and then we're going to custom make um, chip bags or Schneider packs or uh, flat foam pads to use in conjunction with that. I would never use an off-the-shelf garment uh, without any sort of compression padding to compensate for the fit because it's not made for lymphedema. It's made for you know, cosmetic facial tissue support. Um, in fact, in the label for the Epstein garment, it says it provides emotional support, which I think is hilarious. So um, what, what I like to do for a bigger person um, is refer them to a garment by Morena or another brand that runs in extra large, double extra large, or so forth, and it's based on measurements of the neck or the head circumference. So the important thing about off-the-shelf garments is that they're not made for your patient. So they're not going to fit any two people exactly the same. If you apply the garment on a big man with a smaller, tighter mask, for example, or a chin strap, you're going to apply excessive pressure to certain areas. Um, you could cut into the tissue and create swelling above the seam. So you might result in increased swelling in the anterior cheeks or the lower eyelids or so forth. And so oftentimes these garments are not big enough for a big man. And so we'll extend the strap with a Velfoam or something like that to make it fit them better. The, the garment essentially, if it's an off the shelf, serves as a pad holder. And so the pad, uh, whether I'm doing a, 
uh, Schneider pack with, uh, I tend to make mine out of uh, chips of complex foam that I've cut up to between a quarter and a half inch in size. Um, I don't often do a mixed gray and complex foam together, but sometimes I do. Um, and then, so I use a complex chip pad before we do MLD to soften up pitting edema. And then they'll wear that for 30 minutes and then they'll, uh, do their chest congestion, decongestion routine while that's on, uh, have 30 minutes and then do another five minutes of the chest congestion, take that off, do their head and neck portion for the MLD. And then afterwards, uh, they're going to apply a half inch flat gray foam pad that I've cut. Uh, custom made to fit their neck and lower face depending on where their edema is there's a couple of different shapes that i make to make it work well and uh, those tend to work really well i put them in stockinette so it doesn't irritate the skin but the straps themselves are usually basically uh, pad holders for me if i need something for the anterior face like uh, the nose, the cheeks, um, areas that are not covered by the chin strap, the lips, the eyelids, forehead, then I'm going to go with a custom face mask. Um, you can also get custom chin straps. And if the custom chin strap is tight enough, you should be able to go without padding. But again, we run into issues with um, excessive tightness. So um, you don't want to have a problem with you know swelling in areas that you don't have swelling already. For a custom garment, uh, it should be a made-to-measure garment. So you're going to take measures according to a template provided by the manufacturer. Then um, you measure the different aspects of the face. You send the vendor the measurements. They fabricate the mask. You get the mask back. And then it should fit properly. If you have a patient who already has big swollen lips or has big swollen eyelids, then you may want to also get a patch or an insert that will prevent those tissues from coming through the eye holes or through the mouth hole. Uh, when you apply it and so it's a little bit of a of a learning curve when you first start doing it but after you've done it for a while you can uh, control that pretty well you know there are times when a compression is not appropriate so you have a patient who has um, let's say recurrent tumor and that tumor may be blocking uh, vascular flow or lymphatic flow and so there's no good pathway for the fluid to escape well, if you apply a compression mask to a patient like that, you're basically squeezing the fluid to whatever opening is available. And if you don't have a good open passageway, for example, you tried your MLD routine and the patient didn't respond well to it, you didn't, you didn't find the right route to redirect the fluid, then you try to squeeze it out with the mask, you're going to end up with bigger eyelids, bigger lips, um, and problems that that you don't have with the compression. So it's um, it's a it's a problem sometimes where you can't use compression if you have an erupted tumor or you have you know horrible horrible fibrosis in the neck and you can't get any escape and the face the patient's face is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, compression may not be a good option, but there almost always is something that we can do to help with that. So I've had an experience with a patient like that, and I wonder. In that situation, I'm trying to think the best way to put this, Do you? is there a point whenever you're seeing a patient that you decide they're not a good candidate for the head and neck treatment? Not that they couldn't benefit from it, but that there's just nowhere to send the fluid because of scarring, fibrosis, um, potential tumors that are um, metastasizing or anything like that. Um, 
how do you decide maybe if they're not a good candidate for the treatment? Well, I think you first have to consider the contraindications uh, medically that might be there. Um, for example, uh, we all know universal contraindications like hyperthyroidism or um, you know, acute DVTs up in the upper quadrant or the neck that you would want to avoid uh, to create a problem. The things that I always look for um, are you know, severe carotid artery stenosis, you know, greater than 75%. You definitely want to work away from that area. Um, if I've got a patient who has undergone maybe a radical neck dissection and that neck is skeletonized on that side where you can see the carotid artery pulsing, uh, you don't want to be working directly in that region. You know, um, If I've got a patient who has a recurrent disease and maybe I'm treating them for palliative lymphedema management, they have terrible facial swelling because the tumor, like I said a while ago, is interfering with drainage, whether it's um, blocking a vein and the fluid can't drain or they're blocking lymphatics or both. Um, if I have a blood clot in that area, all of those kind of things might be sufficient for me to prevent uh, provision of any kind of treatment. Um, if I have a patient who has got recurrent disease, but there's no dermal metastases in the area, I might go ahead and work on that patient if I can find a good viable pathway where I'm not going to injure the patient. First and foremost, I can't injure my patient by doing a treatment. I don't want to do anything that would harm them. So if I can find something that would give them some relief and I can find a pathway to get some reduction of fluid, then I might work away from an area where I might have a tumor up in the jaw, for example, and the tumor has erupted through the skin. Well, I might work on the opposite side of the face. I might work the posterior part of the head. I might do some areas up in the eyelids or wherever they're swollen, but avoid that jaw area. If that tumor has come into um, the skin and now we have dermal metastases, that has invaded the dermal lymphatics of the skin. And, you know, where we don't really think we can move cancer if it's a deep tumor, you know, a patient has metastatic lung disease, we're not really thinking we're going to move that cancer by doing manual lymphatic drainage. However, if that patient has dermal metastasis up in the jaw and I'm working the adjacent tissue in the jaw, I have done it where I've made that dermal met spread. And so when we start getting those uh, cases, then we have to have the discussion with the patient and with the doctor and say, you know, hey, there is potential for me to spread this cancer. Um, what do you want to do? Because if the patient is, uh, I hate the term terminal, but if he's incurable and there's not any, um, you know, relevant treatment that's going to really make a difference, the patient may opt to go ahead and continue with treatment as long as possible because it's soothing. It makes them feel better, which is the entire point of palliative treatment. However, um, I've recently had a patient where that was the case, and we noticed after you know a few months of treatment, because he wasn't missing, he was coming in, it felt really good, um, but we noticed some progression of his dermal metastases, and so that was the change. He said, yeah, I don't want to do any more, and I said, I don't want to do any more either, so um, we you know stopped his treatment, even though he still had significant facial swelling, so I always try to find a way to provide treatment if I can. Um, first and foremost, don't hurt the patient. Second, can I find a viable pathway that'll work? Third, can I do it or teach the patient or his family to do it 
where it's going to be functional for them. Uh, for example, I had a patient who was in a nursing facility and he had terrible facial edema, um, partly, I think, because he stayed on one side all the time. And that one side of his face was just really grossly swollen. But they brought him on an ambulance once a week. And when I worked on him, I could get results, but no one ever came with him for me to teach them. So when, when I inquired about having someone, they said, oh, yeah, we'll send someone. And no one ever came. He had no family support. He had no nursing support. He had no caregiver support in the facility. And he was not, uh, not able to do it himself. So it wasn't functional for me to keep providing that treatment for him with no carryover. So when I look at someone and I say, you know, eh, I don't think I can help you, it's going to be because, one, there's not a, uh, a feasible way for me to do that for you safely. And, two, there's no way that you can get this carried over, you know. So I think that's where things like the you know, Flexi Dutch head and neck pump uh, come into play for certain cases where somebody is a good candidate, but maybe they can't perform the treatment themselves. They don't have good caregiver support, but they could put a pump on and they would do it. Now, certainly I wouldn't do it on a patient who's got metastatic you know, dermal mets, but I, on a patient who's not in that case, who maybe needs some support, that might be an option for them. And you're talking about frequency a little bit with him coming in an ambulance in your clinic, do you stick to the five days a week regimen? I know that's oh, common for... Um... Heaven, no. Okay. No, I wish we could. Um, in certain cases, like really severe facial swelling, I wish we could. But no, no, no. More often than not, about the most I'll ever see a patient is going to be three days a week. Um, most of the time for the head and neck cancer patients, uh, twice a week to begin with, depending on um, what their severity is, what their ability to learn, because I'm a big proponent of teaching self MLD and doing home programs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for our head and neck guys, the access to the head and neck is generally pretty good. You know, now I've had some guys here recently that have had orthopedic issues, various problems that kind of limits their access, but we can sometimes modify the technique so that they can do it. But, uh, you know, as opposed to a, a leg, where you might have to come in multiple days a week in order to get um, bandages changed and that kind of thing. And I know from personal experience, it's hard to reach down and, and treat my own foot. Um, with the head and neck, sometimes it's easier. So I like to approach treatment for those patients who can do it, make them independent in their home program so that they can then go ahead, treat themselves, and then I become more of a consultant. So I'll teach them a series of sessions, get them independent with their home program or get their caregiver independent with their home program, and then send them on their way and they come back and see me in a month so that I can reassess. Other cases, um, severe facial swelling, uh, limited caregiver support, uh, I'm going to be the primary treater and they may have to come see me more often, but uh, I can, I've been a lymphedema therapist now for 13 years. And I can count on one hand the number of patients I've had come in for four or five days a week. Were you the presenter that talked about using a spatula with Dysum to help <laughs> that wasn't that, that wasn't me, but uh, I've done that. I have I've too. Also, <laughs> I've also used a, a long-handled uh, paint roller to access the upper shoulders and back. Mm -hmm. um, this week, I rolled up a towel because the patient had arthritis and could not rotate his wrist properly. So I rolled up a dish towel 
and had him hang onto the towel and he could use that to stretch the skin and do MLD. And it's not textbook and it's not pretty, but it worked. In our clinic, we have OTs and our OTs do a hand therapy program. Mm -hmm. And I'll go back there all the time and I'll start digging through their cabinet. I'm like, hey, do you guys have any tongue depressors? Uh, I was looking at some of that foam. Can I borrow some of that foam? I need some Velcro. And they're like, are you sure you're not an OT? Because you come back here and get creative all the time. Because <laughs> oh, I'm just the using thing, their stuff yeah. left and right, just trying to throw something together that, you know, the patient can take home. It's not going to cost them two cents. And they can I, I, Yeah, I was told years ago I'm a frustrated OT and engineer. So I'm a, <laughs> I'm a gadget guy. I like to put stuff together and take things apart. And, and uh, if you can, you know, uh, when I... <laughs> When I went over and I was very blessed to be able to go over to Germany and teach, and I was scared to death to talk about the things that I do at the Foldy Clinic thinking they may stone me because <laughs> it's not textbook. But uh, I have found over the years that uh, some people are pretty dogmatic about the way that they approach treatment. And I found that you can't be that way. I think uh, the more flexible you can be in the more real world you can be. Um, you can help a lot of folks because there are too many people out there who can't do proper hand placement. Mm -hmm. They can't do the, you know, now uh, speed is important. Pressure is important. But if you can't get your hand exactly the way that I want you to, uh, I'm not going to give up. We're going to rotate and we're going to turn and we're going to use implements and we're going to use whatever you can to get that going. If you can't, then we look at what other alternatives there are. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not a, um, a dogmatic kind of guy. There's more than one way to skin a cat and I like to use all of them. That's good. It took me a little while to, uh, accept that. I think when I was first a, ther uh, a lymphedema therapist in my nine days where I was with my instructor, she was adamant that if they cannot do five days a week. They cannot bring someone with them every time. They cannot buy up front the garments. She just won't even see them for the rest of the eval. Yeah, that's true. And bad. I remember I came back and my PT, who's a CLT, she, I don't know, somebody was on my schedule and it was only going to be two times a week or something along those lines. And I just went back and I'm like, we have to have them five days a week. She's like, there's no way this is happening. Well, we don't need yeah. to see them if they can't do that. And I'm, well, one, embarrassed to say that, but two, has nothing to do with my plan of care, so she trumps anything I say. Um, but now I just like, you know, if I can get you once a week, if that's all you can tolerate, if that's all you can afford, I'll see you as much as I can as long as you're doing your homework. And sure. I've had probably better results with that than anyone that could probably come five days a week sometimes. I think you have to find what works for your patient. And... Uh, some patients um, and head and neck cancer patients have a, a bad reputation of being non-compliant. If you think about, you know, the old school head and neck patient who's um, perhaps an alcoholic, heavy smoker, high risk personality, um, they may not be all that compliant. Um, you know, we, we see them for radiation treatment um, and, you know, swallowing exercises and things like that. And it's notoriously difficult to get them to comply with those things. One, because it's pain in the tail. Two, they think they're stupid. Um, and they just don't want to do it. But if you can find um, motivation and the way that the patient will buy into treatment, because one of the things that I look for during an assessment is, how's this bothering you? And 
is it a big deal? Because if, you know, one of my questions is, why are you here? Well, my doctor sent me. Why did your doctor send me? I really don't know. <laughs> so, well, it says here you have lymphedema. I said, no, I don't have any lymphedemia or lymphoma or anything like that. I said, no, it's swelling. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a little problem, but it's not a big deal. Yeah, I don't care about that. So I said, you know, if I'm going to ask you to wear something three or four hours a night, and I'm going to ask you to do this every day. And they're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I said, okay, why don't we just watch it and see if it gets any better? Because I don't want to waste your time or waste mine. And some people, they take me up on that. And they say, yeah, I don't want to mess with that. It doesn't bother me, you know. And then other guys, uh, I look at it and I say, you don't have a whole lot of swelling. But to them, it's the end of the world. Right. So, you know, you have to find out for them what's going to work. I had one gentleman who was a, a wealthy gentleman, and he wanted to know how I was going to make his swelling better. And I said, well, I'm going to teach you how to make your own swelling better. And he said, you're not going to do it for me? And I said, no, sir. He said, but I want you to do it for me. And I said, well, I'm sorry. I said, I don't operate that way. I'm going to teach you what to do. Uh, you are physically capable of doing it. Um, I said, if you want to hire someone, I'm glad to teach them how to do it. But uh, you're not going to come see me every day to do something that you can do yourself. So I try to find what works for them. And he, by the way, bought into it and he did it quite well. Good. But, um, you know, find out what motivates them. What's the driving force? What's going to help them, you know? Uh, what, and the big question that you get and I get is what happens if I don't do anything? Well, maybe nothing, but maybe it's going to get worse. Maybe it's going to interfere with some problems. And if we can prevent it, it certainly would help. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk specifically about intraoral MLD. I know we're talking about, um, self MLD and the patient learning and being independent in their program, mm -hmm. but intraoral MLD is not something that I, as a therapist, I'm confident in. And I sometimes wonder, you know, one, when is it needed over the external MLD that we're doing to the head and the neck and the face? Um, and how can we teach that to our patients, the intraoral technique? Well, it's not very difficult uh, to do it, honestly. Um, some obstacles that uh, interfere with provision of intraoral MLD might be uh, really sensitive um, gag reflex. Uh, somebody who you look at them wrong and they want to gag. So uh, I've had people that you just touch their lip and they, they don't tolerate it well. And then other people, you could drive a Mack truck through their mouth and they have no response whatsoever. But that um, flap reconstructions uh, that might interfere, for example, with your access to uh, the cheek or the jaw or someplace where you have some edema. Um, trismus, where you can't get your finger into the mouth very well. Um, you know, a lot of different things like that that might interfere with your ability to do it, provided you don't really have any big obstacles like that. Uh, areas that you might perform intraoral MLD on might include uh, the lips and the tongue and the palate and the cheeks. And it's not difficult to perform. It's relatively uh, simple tasks. I tend to use variations of stationary circles. Um, in the areas that I want to address, you have to provide external support to the tissues. Um, for example, you know, when you provide MLD to um, an arm or a leg, you have a bone that's providing support to that soft tissue. Oftentimes, if you're working on a cheek, uh, there's no jawbone in the area that you're working that's swollen. So you have to provide external support with your hand. Um, if you're working on a tongue and you're pushing down, 
you have to support underneath the chin or else the head is going to bob up and down as you're applying pressure downward on the tongue. Um, you actually have to apply more pressure to the tongue than what you might think to make that effective because you're effectively trying to put the tongue down into the floor of the mouth in order to, to apply pressure and squeeze some fluid out of it. If you sit there and roll your finger back and forth on the surface of the tongue super, super lightly, it's not going to work very well. Um, it's not difficult to perform it once you know what you're doing. Uh, in my class, I teach you how to do that. Um, you'd be amazed how many therapists gag at the thought of putting their finger in someone else's mouth. Uh, a non-speech pathologist, that's very foreign to them. And so, um, you know, in some to very legitimate issues, uh, some occupational therapists around the country have said, oh, my licensure prevents me from uh, performing that. But I still teach them how to do it so they can teach their patients how to do it. So if the patient has a good touch, um, that's important. You know, if, if you have uh, essentially concrete hands and all your MLD techniques are too heavy, no matter what you do, then uh, it's going to be difficult to teach external MLD as well as, as intraoral. But if the patient has a good touch and they're a good learner and they're patient, then you can teach them how to do it. And the nice thing about intraoral is that you can feel some real change uh, very quickly. Uh, as you can a lot with, with head and neck treatment in general. But um, working on the cheeks, for example, if the cheek feels very thick, and the way we assess that is you take your you know, thumb and your forefinger and you use them like calipers. And so you reach in and you assess one side and you reach over and assess the other side. And lo and behold, one side feels much thicker than the other. Well, you apply your outside hand to the outside cheek. Uh, you put your gloved finger on the inside of the mouth and then apply some stationary circles to the cheek going back and down against your hand, which you can feel the pressure, then pretty quickly you're going to feel that cheek thin out. Uh, the same thing with lips. Lips reduce very, very quickly, and it's kind of weird because if you have a bilateral lip swelling and we work on the lateral edge of one side of the lip, work medial and then work back, that one side of the lip will be very thin and it'll be very flaccid, and the other side will still be fat. It's very odd. But um, it's it's not difficult to do. It's just knowing what to do. I'm really looking forward to applying those methods. I have a patient now that I will try tomorrow, actually, on uh, the intraoral with her. So I'm looking forward to it. Good luck with that. Thank you. The uh, if she's a gagger, it, it can be tricky. And so you know the one the one area that's really troublesome. Um, if you're trying to work on the tongue, um, you don't want to use your fingertips on the tongue. You want to do the entire body of your finger and cover as much of the tongue as you can. Well, the farther back you go on the tongue, more likely you are to trigger a gag. So don't go way too far back there. And also, if you ever have to do palatal edema where you're going up on the top of the roof of the mouth, when you hit the soft palate, that tends to be the part where you gag. So just be careful when you, you introduce, tell what you're going to do. Don't just shove it in there and uh, explain, you know, hey, I'm going to feel the roof of your mouth and let's see how you tolerate that. And one thing that I have found over and over and over is if, if they tend to be easy gaggers, they may often do better with their own finger than they do with my finger. It's good to know. I'm going to definitely keep that in my back pocket for uh, tomorrow's treatment. Um, so final question, what courses or literature is available if us therapists are wanting to grow our knowledge in head and neck? Um, and can you do any of those courses if you're not already a certified lymphedema therapist? Good question. So, uh, 
as far as articles, uh, I'm going to send you some references for uh, some relevant head and neck articles. In the past, what is this, 2019, um, our 2010 article was one of the very first clinical articles that was published for management and outcomes uh, in a long time. So since then, uh, Vanderbilt has published a number of articles related to head and neck lymphedema, um, and they did a, a really nice study with 81 patients that they've put several articles out. There have been a number of articles that have come out in the past five or six years that discuss that, so I can give you a bibliography of those things. Um, in both of the articles that we published in 2010 and 2015, we discuss our measurement protocols, uh, the general treatment approaches, and then give data on the um, outcomes that we've had as far as reduction and success. And in general, um, you know, it's, it's a successful treatment. We uh, published an article in 15 of nearly a thousand patients in it where we had follow-up data. And what we found was that 74% of those patients that were compliant in their home program made a significant change in the size or uh, firmness of their edema at their first follow-up visit. Wow. And so uh, compliant meant that they did the routine five days a week or more at home. But the neat thing was that um, 54%, I think, 56% that were somewhat compliant meant they did it three to five days a week had the same outcomes. Wow. So if, you know, when we first started doing this years ago, people said, oh, you can't teach people how to do this. They're not going to do it. They have to have a therapist to do it. But what we have found is that if somebody really does it accurately, somewhat accurately, and pretty consistently, they're going to get decent results out of it. And, of course, the better they are about it, the better the results will be. Um, there are a number of really nice articles that have come out, like I said, from Vanderbilt. Uh, there's a nice article that came out of um, Australia the, where they documented a different type of measurement protocol called the Aloha Protocol. That one, the patient's laying down as opposed to sitting up. Um, there's a lot of nice stuff, and head and neck has become a hot topic over the past decade. So um, there's a lot of nice stuff. As far as hands-on courses, um, uh, I teach course through the Norton School of Lymphatic Therapy, and that uh, this year I've got four courses around the country. Um, that is open to lymphedema therapists uh, of you know PTOT massage therapy. It's open to medical speech pathologists who see head and neck cancer patients. Uh, it's not open to other folks who don't see head and neck cancer patients, and it's open to physicians. The reason that we allow um, SLPs to come to my course is because the SLP who works in a head and neck cancer setting and sees those patients is often the first one to encounter these patients. And so I can teach them, just like I teach a caregiver uh, in three days, how to do uh, a basic uh, assessment, basic management routines that'll work for the majority of the patients that they encounter. But I always encourage them to work in association with certified lymphedema therapists in their program um, and to pursue further certification as a lymphedema therapist if they're going to be seeing a lot of patients. The other courses that are available, mine is a two and a half day course. The Academy of Lymphatic Studies offers a head and neck course, which is a two day course. And then um, Close Consulting offers a one-day head and neck course, as well as an online course. And so the drawback to an online course, of course, is that you can't do any hands-on component with it. And I think that with um, any kind of head and neck therapy, you just have to do hands-on. It's different than what you do with your extremities. And so 
uh, it really is beneficial to, to go to attend one. Um, I actually first took the uh, course offered by Heidi Walsh through Close when I got certified back in 2005. And what I found was that as I went to that course as a speech pathologist with no previous background uh, in lymphedema, that I got back and I couldn't do anything. So I found that, um, you know, I tried to mimic what I saw in the course and I came back and I didn't have any foundational knowledge that allowed me to do anything. So I formatted my course to remedy that problem. And so we include enough foundation that they take before they come. Uh, as well as the the stuff that I teach in the course designed to make uh, the non-lymphedema therapist speech path more comfortable and able to apply those things. So I, I have concerns with, um, you know, somebody whose friend taught them how to do MLD and, and, you know, just watch me and do this and it'll be just fine. I have concerns with that. Um, when I took that head and neck course, I came back and I couldn't do anything. So that's what prompted me to go and become certified. And so then I did the full certification after that. And that put all the pieces together for me. So, um, you know, if you work in a large clinic and you've got people who are good mentors and those things, um, then you might be able to get away with not actually going to certification, but I, I don't like that. Um, I would think that it would be best to go and pursue all the training that you can so that you're better equipped and, and on the same playing field with everybody else. Brad, thank you so much for answering all of my questions today. I know that this is going to be so helpful and just a great resource for anyone who's listening, therapist or physician or patient, really, even if a patient wants to listen to this one. Um, so can you share for us just any final words of wisdom to someone listening today that is stumped by a specific complicated case? Well, um, I, you know, I, I don't want to and set myself up for a problem, but I do uh, sometimes do long distance consults. So if you have problems with tricky patients and you need some feedback, you know, am I approaching this the right way or things like that? I'm always glad to do that via email. Um, in general, I think that, you know, it's rare that we encounter somebody that we, we can't help with our lymphedema management. I think on those rare occasions, like we discussed you may have something that's too complicated, too dangerous, um, those kind of things. But I've, I've seen a lot over the years. And so um, I think a little therapy is better than no therapy as long as it can be safe. I'd like to try different things. And if you, for example, say, well, I, I would normally go anteriorly with this patient and it's not working, then let's try posterior, you know, be creative, try and, and work outside the box. Just like you initially were told that it had to be five days a week or it's not worth exploring. Try those different things and see what works and what doesn't work. And you might be surprised at uh, something kind of out of the ordinary that, that really does work for that particular person. I think that's some great advice. I definitely know that I could have used that in my first few months, maybe even year of being a new CLT. So again, thank you so much, Brad, for being here. And this has been a great pleasure. And Thank I'm, you for having me. I can't wait to listen to this episode on repeat myself. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Mother Teresa says, loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty. This podcast is here for you to find friendship and a community for your journey with lymphedema. I hope you've enjoyed learning more about head and neck lymphedema treatment with my special guest, Brad Smith, today. Email me with your story if you would like to share at lymphedemapodcast at gmail.com 
or visit the website lymphedemapodcast.com to submit a topic for another episode.